Which would you prefer? A universe that is just but uncaring, or a universe that is caring but unjust? Can't have both. You probably can't have either. But consider what you'd prefer. A world where the just are rewarded and the wicked punished, each according to their final score? Or a world where no one is punished or rewarded, where the results are one and the same? We live, we die, we embrace the void. Warning, this podcast contains foul language, dark invocations, and treating women like their people. Welcome, friends, to episode 53 of Embrace the Void, where ESP might be real, but hope remains unsupported by the data. I am your host, Aaron, and with me, as always, is my better half, GW. How you doing, GWs? I wonder if that would be moral luck, right? If you got the ESP, then oh. the moral luck of having that, so... Yeah, yeah. And, and how much worse that would be for you, having to hear the, the thoughts of other human beings. Yeah, it depends if you could suppress it or not. Yeah. And none of us seem very able to suppress it right now, and that's why we're all suffering. Indeed. Indeed. All right, so we've got another um, wonderful interview um, that we need to hop on over to because it's super long and juicy. So I guess let's just do that thing. What's Chang doing? He's getting a refill on his void. So this week, we're welcoming to this show a fellow podcaster and moral luck aficionado. Uh, Stephanie Lepp uh, is the host of The Reckoning Podcast, a show about people who go through a substantial reckoning and how it changes them. Uh, Stephanie, would you like to say hi to the void? Hi, void. (laughs) (laughs) So we got in touch with you, I think, through a fellow uh, mutual listener who really wanted to hear us all sort of come together and talk about our shared interests. So uh, do you want to maybe get started talking, give, give a little background on The Reckoning Podcast, how it got started? How you're, what got you attracted to those kinds of stories? Yeah, sure. And actually, I forgot that that was the connection. So listener, whoever you are, and we should find your, your original tweet. Um, yeah, we, we're making your, your, your wish come true. Um, so, so reckonings, yeah. So it was, it was really just through being involved in different kinds of you know, social social change, social activism, the, the question would always come up for me, you know, are we changing anyone? Like, mm-hmm. am I actually changing anyone's mind on climate change or, you know, minimum wage or, or anything, anything that I was involved in, which, you know, which then begs the question, you know, how do people actually change their hearts and minds? And that just became kind of a loose, a loose, uh, fascination. And I, I used to keep this very unscientific running list of the things that I thought radically changed people's hearts and minds, like, mm-hmm. you know, near death experiences or falling in love or psychedelics or, mm-hmm. you know, rarely, but sometimes, uh, information <laughs> rarely. Um, and, uh, it's certainly something that doesn't change people's minds is being told to change their minds. So, but so, so this, this very unscientific, uh, exploration, finally, I realized might be fun to manifest within the medium of 
storytelling as a podcast. And so mm. I started Reckonings, which really just comes from the idea that change in the world happens inside of people, which goes back to the question, okay, so how do people change? You know, how do we change our political worldviews? How do we overcome racism and homophobia? How do we recover from addiction? So I've talked to, you know, all kinds of, and, and you'll hear some excerpts, but, you know, anything from a deeply conservative congressman who made a dramatic shift on climate change all the way to, you know, a, a white supremacist who managed to to overcome a, a life of hate, so it's been a it's been a, a pretty diverse cast of characters. But, um, but yeah, the through line is 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 just an exploration of the question: uh, How do people change, and mm -hmm. and how do people change in ways that connect to or scale into broader social and political change? I I can't help but notice how great the underscoring is in some of the tracks. Uh, I just wanted to say that before yeah. we dive into all the other things that are way more important than that. But I love oh, the music you're saying. I love yeah. the underscoring. Really? Not, not well, way more amazing. important. The music is I important. I am amazed that you're saying that. It's, it's really me depending on the kindness of mostly friends because I don't have much of a budget to work with. So it's really the kindness of, of friends and or the musician friends or musicians I've reached out mm -hmm. to and have been super generous. And I really have like a very limited set of tracks to work with, but I do what I can with, with them. So that's so great to hear. I will, I will let them know because there's <laughs> not that many of them and I use their music over and over again. So that's really great. I will let them know. And uh, GW, mm -hmm. while you're self-deprecating towards your own work, we shouldn't be self-deprecating towards the importance of that work. It is just as important as the other things that we're going to talk about here. And yeah. Oh, are you a musician? No, but he, I mean, Ooh. he does the all the editing on this, and he is, he is oh, a musician as well. well yeah. But like, just to be clear, I am a musician. I play. Yeah. No, that's what I was. Oh, I, said, oh, I think yeah, you said no. He's not a musician. I was like, wait a minute. <laughs> I thought at first, first I thought she was asking, "Are you like like me? Am I a musician?" Oh, oh. I was saying, "No, I'm not a musician. Though I can." Huh. I, can sing a little bit, but uh, GW is both a musician and a expert sound uh, person uh, oh, of awesome. many talents. Yeah. Do you prefer designer? Yeah. Is that the, the the preferred nomenclature at this point? Well, it, dep it depends. <laughs> I mean, like I'm a sound designer and I'm a composer and I'm an engineer, so right. okay. I'm a sound artist. Is I think the the big umbrella. You're a triple. Th oh, you're nice. a triple threat. Yeah. Yeah. Um. So. What's uh? I'm curious the way you phrase it that way. The first question I immediately want to poke you with is, uh, uh, from my perspective, is what? How have you changed as a result of doing all of this? Ah, uh, yes, yeah. So right. you get that. Yeah, a lot. the joke is kind of you know it's like I'm exploring how people change and that it's me who's actually being changed, which really is the way that I feel. <laughs> you know, because I I mean if I sat down to next to most of my guests at a dinner party, I would most of the time probably get up and walk away because we are so different and they are coming mm. from places I cannot kind of immediately or instinctively relate to. But since my job here is just to listen to them and there's no, like, I don't, I don't have to respond to anything. And like, I, I, there's no, like, we're not trying to have like a pleasant five minute conversation at a dinner party so I can keep on schmoozing with somebody else. Like all I, all I'm doing is listening and actually trying to understand so that I can actually tell their story, you know, with integrity. I, it really kind of 
releases me to just really hear where they're coming from and 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 then find out that I can actually relate to where they're coming from. So I which doesn't doesn't justify, you know, like uh doesn't necessarily doesn't justify what they have done. I don't I don't have compassion for what they have done, but I can, I do find myself being able to have compassion for why they did it. And so it's it's less that let's say like my perspective on how people change has has changed, although I, I, I certainly feel more clarity around that, more clarity, than, more clarity than my highly unscientific list that I had going, but it's maybe more that um, I have just strengthened my belief or, or, my, or my practice, my, 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 my decision to believe that I can probably understand and, and, and find a way to relate to and have compassion for where most people Mm-hmm. are coming from. And if I just hold on to that, you know, as I wander through the world, then it just creates, it just opens many more possibilities in terms of how I can interact with someone. Cause I have that seed in my head. Like I may not be able to see where you're coming from now, but if I spent enough time, you know, and asked you the right questions, I probably would be able to. It, it sort of reminds me of something. I can't remember where this doesn't come from me. I can't remember where I heard this, but no one thinks they're a villain in their own story, right? Everyone thinks they're a hero in their own right. story. And what's really beautiful about all this is I try in my personal life to try to listen to other people's perspectives as much as possible and empathize and understand. And it's, you know, everyone wants to tell their story, whatever that is, and and has this sort of deep-seated need to, like, explain themselves or justify themselves uh, to other people that that potentially don't agree with them, uh, you know, and that manifests in different ways. Some of it is anger, yeah. and some of it is like you know, trying to sit down and talk with someone. But uh, that's what's really great about yeah. this. Like even you know, I think we're going to sort of go into this first one, uh, and we'll play a, a clip from it. But the the white supremacist is a perfect example. Yes. Yeah. And actually, you know what you're reminding me, it, it really goes both ways because it's both how do I hear something when I'm really committed to understanding it? And how does someone explain something when they don't feel like the first thing that's going to happen is they're going to get like beat up about what they're about to right. say, mm-hmm. like when they're they're also just really being listened to. So, yeah, you know, sometimes people say to another person, you don't understand, you haven't experienced this. And you also hear some people say, like, you know, I understand I've experienced that, like, you know, in different words than that, but that's essentially what they're saying. It's almost this, like, I've literally experienced what you've experienced, and so I have the ability to really fully empathize with your position. And sometimes there's a perception that people that haven't uh, experienced an exact thing can't possibly even come close to understanding. I think that there's some grain of truth to it, but... I don't think totally personally. Yeah. Cause, cause we might not have experienced the thing they experienced, but we probably have experienced the like emotion that led them to do the thing or the motivation. It's like, I just wanted to be loved. It's like, I can totally relate to that. (laughs) I can totally relate to that. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And I think the unifying theme of the desire to construct the narrative where you are justified in your behavior and the asymmetries that creates where people will let themselves off the hook for things that they would hold other people to account for. Um, I think that you do a good job in the show uh, at sort of trying to 
pick at that idea. And that's another one that I think is very important in the moral luck discussion with the humility. Yeah. Like all these sort of ideas tie together around getting people to relax their narratives a little bit that that are protective shields for them for their egos enough to change their behaviors a little bit by being honest about the consequences of those behaviors. Mm-hmm. Yeah. But you're right. It takes, yeah. you know, putting them in a very, you know, as as frustrating as it might be to feel like you have to go the extra mile for someone who has already caused harm. You do have to kind of help them into a safe space of sorts before they can sort of fully acknowledge those issues, before they can then construct a new narrative that allows them to say, you know, I did some things that were kind of villainous at that point and I'm not excusing it, but there are explanations for it, but I can do better going forward. Yeah. Yeah. And and I mean, ultimately, it's like we got to just keep our eye on the prize. Like, what do we want here? Mm. Do we want to only punish? I mean, punishment obviously has a place. And there are, are also, you know, other fish to fry, so to speak. You know, we're also trying to heal and grow. Mm. Uh, so shall we talk about that? Yeah. That first clip with the uh, white supremacist speaking of. So and I guess just to s- set it up. Um, yeah. So this episode I mean, I don't, we don't, we don't need that much. Well, yeah, a little bit of context. So this, this episode, this is episode 19, weaves together the stories of a white supremacist and a jihadi extremist who both transcended lives of hate. And at times you can't really tell who is who, but that's kind of part of the point. You know, we often think of these ideologies as different or operate or separate, but, you know, these two people's journeys are very similar and either one of them could have been the other and you know one it could have ended up as a jihadi extremist could have ended up as a white supremacist you know and it's like when you need something you know you 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 reach out and grab whatever's there whether it's cocaine or alcohol or some flavor of violent extremism so it's 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 kind of like a weaving together of their stories to kind of show yeah it's it's uh, you reach out for whatever is there and this is what was there for them but their stories are very parallel so this this clip is of frank uh he was the he was the white supremacist um and this is right after right after he got out of jail at one point he 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 can't find a job you know he's got (laughs) swastika tattoos he's got all these tattoos all over him you know he um and but, but he ends up getting a gig through a friend with a jewish antique dealer and this this Jewish antique dealer knows he's a neo-Nazi, knows that Frank is a neo-Nazi, but but he says, you know, he doesn't care what Frank believes as long as he, you know, does the job and doesn't f- break his furniture. So this clip um, picks up right after uh, the first job that Frank did for him at a trade show. He gave me a ride home that night. And when he gave me the ride home, and then as he's dropping me off, he just goes, hey, what do you do for a living? I said, I don't do anything. He goes, well, why don't you come work for me? And I'm looking down. I have my Doc Martens on my red laces, which meant I'm a neo-Nazi. And I keep looking down at the boots as he's talking to me, this Jewish man. And I'm trying to hide the boots underneath the under part of the seat. I'm just like looking at him like, thank God this human being is in my life. It's fear. I was full of fear. I was full of absolute fear uh, for everything. 
And so I got with a group of people who also were fear, fearful people. They're fearful they're losing their homeland or going to lose their women to the black man. I mean, you name it. And my fear I felt made me weak. And so what they did is they turned my fear into an anger and they made it to where it was a, a, just my strong point now. I was completely embarrassed of my beliefs. I was wrong, and I've been wrong for the last seven years of my life. I've been completely wrong. This is all bullshit. I believed in something I was willing to die and kill for, something that is bullshit. I had so much seniority in this group. That seniority was important to me because I had nothing in this world. Like I cut everything and everybody that was not part of the movement out of my life. So that's all I have. So the car ride's coming to an end and he drops me off. And he just goes, I'll see you Monday, right? my pay and I, I went home and I could not wait to get home and get them boots off my feet. Like my whole image of me is gone and I got to build something new. Um. So yeah, I love this clip, but I certainly also want to talk about the nuances here a little bit, especially with regard to moral luck. I, I feel like it's a beautiful story, right? You've got this white supremacist who gets hired by a Jewish person who's willing to take a chance on this former white supremacist. And um, I think that's really great. I, I, interestingly, when I was listening to it, my first concern is, you know, the reality of moral luck is it could have gone the other way. And right. like, mm -hmm. it's hard to, it's hard to discount. I don't, I don't want moral luck to turn into the kind of theory where it's so rosy eyed about you know, if you just, you know, keep doing the things that it works out because like that, that could have gone very badly for that guy that, you know, he could have stolen from him. He could have um, ripped him off. He could have beaten him up. Who knows? So like, how do you, how do you cope with sort of trying to address those two sides of the coin? You're saying, um, well, um, that it could have gone the other way in the sense of Frank could have hurt the guy or the guy could have not, let, let's say, like paid Frank or treated him well. M more likely the former than the latter, I think, it seems Frank like. Frank could have hurt the guy. Right. I mean, I, you know, I, and how do I think about the fact that it could have gone the other way? I, I mean... Yeah, this guy took a risk. I don't know what inspired him to take a risk, but I guess the only the, the the what I can say is, you know, and this is this is this is kind of what comes the, the 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 name of the episode is How Will We Become Majestic Elephants, which will make sense if you listen to the episode. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and this kind of comes up in the explanation of the title is 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 just like yes, there is a risk and unless we all take 
like even the smallest risk, if it's not giving the person the job, it could just be making eye contact as you walk by them. Like unless we all take these little risks, smaller or larger risks, how are we ever all going to change? Yeah. Um, How is it ever all going to happen? And so many of these stories, I mean, you, well, you, you, one of your questions is, you know, how, 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 how do people change? Like, what have I noticed? What patterns have I noticed? And yeah. one huge category, well, I guess I can just say that two, I mean, the, what, the, what I have noticed as far as how people change is it usually falls into two big uh, categories. One is seeing ourselves more clearly, just like seeing clearly who I am and what I am doing. Uh, or and, and the other category is seeing, quote unquote, the other more clearly, whoever the other is, which for this, for Frank, let's say it was Jewish people. Mm-hmm. Um, but who, whoever the, your quote unquote other is. And, and that, that is the pivot for so many people, just clearly seeing the person, the kinds of people that they have been otherizing. So that, that means that someone is going to have to be that Jewish guy that, you know, that becomes a person to someone like Frank, or someone's going to have to be that Muslim, or someone's going to have to be that whoever it is that is our other, you know, in mm-hmm. listeners, you can think, you know, like, who is my other? Who, who, who is it that I otherize? And, and how is it that I come into contact with them? And, and for, and for, uh, you know, it's like, who, 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 who am I the other to? And unless I, I do whatever I need to do, small risk, large risk to make myself a person to them. I mean, that's, that's, that's the only way. Yeah. It, the, there's two things I want to say. First is that, you know, you never hear because it probably never happens that someone's had their mind changed because someone yelled at them, right? Like, you know, no (laughs) one says you're a fucking Nazi and they're like, oh, wow, let me think about that. Right. That doesn't happen. And, and the second thing is, uh, this is, I hear this type of story frequently. And I mean, that in a positive way of like, you know, someone sat down and talked to them or listened to them. And that's what got them to change. And I think it's where like, it's, it's the fodder that defines my position of, you know, should we fire the Nazi and I'm of the side of no, right? Like we celebrate Recently, there was that, you know, again, that white person who called on a blo- called the cops on a black person because they were at a pool. Mm-hmm. And then everyone mm-hmm. celebrated when that person was fired from their job. And I mm-hmm. mourn that. Right. Because then there's mm-hmm. no one to like he's being ostracized and that doesn't solve yeah. the problem. Right. There's no learning yeah. in the institution. Yeah. Right. Yeah. And I guess, I mean, I can't make any hard and fast rules. It's not like any time a neo-Nazi wants you to hire him and you're a Jewish person, you should go ahead and do it. Like there's no, but it's, it's always on a case by case basis. But, but again, it's like, unless we are kind of willing to, you know, put ourselves out there, whether smaller risk, bigger risk, like in some kind of a way, like that is the way that we're going to grow. I I definitely agree with both of y'all. I'm, I'm just in my voidy ways kind of want us to be want us to be not you know i want want us to be clear-eyed about the cost and the burden shifting that happens when we say this what we are saying is to be moral is to in a sense go above and beyond what would be expected in terms of safety and fairness and take a chance with someone i I see this online even right and like you you sort of 
laid it out a little bit at the beginning, right? You were saying if I was next to this person physically in the real world, I would get up and walk away pretty quickly. But but in the safe safer environment of a podcast interview, you can be there and be that sort of a, a person who helps them to humanize others, which is uh, I think a risk that you are taking, and I think that is valuable. I just want to you know, throw out a little voice for the people who are in my heads online who are like, you know, you have, I have a, gr- a group called Monster Island that our fans listen to us <laughs> talk about all the time. That's like a place full of the kinds of people that you're talking to before they've gone through their reckoning. And it is a scary place for a lot of people. Yeah. And like, I've shifted from, you know, being a little bit more like, you know, it's your obligation to be in a place like that and communicate with people like that to say, if you want to go that extra mile and engage with those kind of people that way, then you're right. That is probably the only way to help those people out of that hole. But I'm not sure we want to say that like a lot of people have a huge obligation to impose that cost on themselves, especially in a world where we're already being crushed by so many moral costs as it is. Yes, yes. And I agree with that. I mean, all of the above, ultimately. But first of all, I just want to say thank you for calling me on my dinner party thing, because you're totally right. And if I've learned anything, I should just stay sitting there and talk to that person. Because, you know, if I'm saying I've learned something from this show. (laughs) um, So thank you for reminding me of that. But no, I I mean, I I think you're not unreasonable in doing what you're doing. Like, I'm not trying to call you out. no, no, you're, you're making a good connection. I mean, I appreciate that. I appreciate that. I don't feel called out. I, I, I find that helpful. Uh-huh. Um, but I, and I guess the other, the, the other thing I will say, though, too, is that, is that we can see it as a burden. It's like, do I, is it really my responsibility to help you with your healing? You know, it's like, I got my own stuff to take care of. Sure. But we can also see it as an opportunity for leadership. Mm-hmm. You know, and I feel like that's like this might be a really provocative, I don't know, thing to say, but I feel like that's there. There's, and I maybe I can just say this more because I am a woman and I I do have my own Me Too experience. Like I can say, I don't want the, I don't want men only to have to like, to to be entirely responsible for their own growth. I want to set some of those terms myself because I have ways that I want men to grow, you know, and, and I'm, and I would be missing out on an opportunity to take leadership if I only expected, you know, like them to do all the quote unquote work. So I don't, I, it, it, yes, there's, there's a, there's a cost and there's a responsibility. And I I do think there's also an opportunity for, for leadership in that. Maybe, maybe the nuanced position is right. No one is (laughs) obligated to try to reach out to you know, people that they disagree with in some way or or exhibit problematic behavior. But at the very least, no one should be forcing the ostracization of these types of people, right? Like, I think what you hear in, in the guy's story, right? He says, I had a hard time finding a job because I was a felon, right? And that's something that we do as a society that increases the um, recidivism rate Right. People get out of jail and they can't get a job anywhere because no one will hire them. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. Uh, that is a huge, huge problem. And so I think at the very least, we could say that we shouldn't outwardly ostracize. And hopefully some people are willing to bring them into their circle in some way. Yeah. Yeah. And and, and maybe the like the summary nuance of the nuance position <laughs> is something like, you know, under, you know, it's it, I think actually it really depends on your goal. Sure. I mean, it, and, and if our goal is to change, grow, I mean, mm-hmm. 
which obviously has its own set of like, what does that mean? And <laughs> how do we define that? And, but if, if your goal is not only to punish or not only to blame, but also to heal, to grow, to recover, uh, then, then you just have to ask yourself, like, what, what, what are the ways to get there? And if, you know, talking to people and engaging people and crossing those, making those bridges, building those bridges, crossing those divides is a way to get there, then perhaps under some circumstances when it feels safe and appropriate, that really is warranted. Sure. Yeah, I'd love to talk about some of the other things about ways to get there. Um, so you sent us a piece as well that was really great from the one about the teen overcoming bullying that uh, tied in with these issues of moral luck a little bit. Um, yeah. I don't know if we want to play that uh, G-dubs and then talk about that some. Yeah, let's do it. <laughs> um, should I give a little context on it? Or I it's guess, up to you. Uh, yeah, I mean, I guess I'll just say, yeah. So th this, this is from, this clip is from episode 16, which features two teenagers who managed to overcome bullying, that having been bullies. And... Um, yeah, I, I, it's just really extraordinary to hear young people, you know, these people are 16, 17 years old, be capable of such deep, you know, self-reflection and, and capable of, 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 of taking responsibility for their impact on other, on other people. Um, but this, this clip is, you know, one, one question I ask pretty much all guests is a question that points straight at moral luck, which is the, you know, how do you hold both what you did and what was done to you or, you, you know, how do you both take responsibility for your actions and also acknowledge that you were put in some really constraining circumstances that, you know, that moved you to behave in certain ways. And so, you know, a, a lot of people, and this is true for a lot of people, you know, grew up in a challenging environment or, or experienced some kind of conditions that were conducive to what they ended up doing. And we know the saying hurt people, hurt people, but you know, moral luck is like, where does that leave us <laughs> with, in terms of personal responsibility? So this, this, this is one of the teenagers, Holly, who, and responding to, to that question. How do you take responsibility for your bullying and also recognize that, you know, you had a tough upbringing and you didn't have your mom and Things were tough for you. Um, I try not to let those be excuses because I could feel like some type of way about what was going on, but that still had nothing to do with other people and me doing what I did to them didn't help my situation either. It's kind of like I just did that because that's how I was feeling and it was wrong. Once you actually, like, start making a change like once you do it it's really easy and it make you feel better because before like when you do the stuff like bullying and all that you never really happy but like now that I'm just not that person anymore I'm very happy so what really spoke to me in this passage was where she talks about how it's not an excuse and if I were engaging with her and trying to dialogue her way through the situation I would talk to her, I guess, about confusing an explanation with an excuse. And I'm curious if that's a fallacy that, that you've come across uh, explicitly or if you've ever talked about that with folks more. Um, to me, that is a really important part of the moral luck puzzle that when I 
talk to people about this topic. At some point, they eventually get concerned that you're just making an excuse for everyone. And I don't think we are making an excuse for everyone. But I, like you're saying, like you were saying in the introduction, like how do they wait? How do they cope with this tension between, you know, they were responsible, but also they were many factors were driving things beyond their control. Um, you know, like, do you do you see that reoccurring theme about like how they're trying to deal with um, what is not just a fallacy, but a, I think kind of a paradox of our attempts to cope with our own behavior? Yeah, I, by the way, I discovered moral luck through you. So first of all, thank you, oh, because it is a brilliant, I find it a brilliant and very useful concept. I'm so glad. Um, yeah, I mean, I was asking this question, but I didn't have an, I didn't, I didn't know that this was a, you know, this is a phenomenon that has been philosophized about. So it's really helpful to have a, a name. You know, what we call and, that and what you just, what? you know, what we call that, by the way. What? Lucky. <laughs> <laughs> Isn't that nice? So lucky. Um, and this, and you just did it again, actually, with this explanation versus excuse, because that's also something I I hit on, I and I hadn't really articulated as succinctly as you just did. But I mean, the way that I have kind of wrapped my mind around it is really just what is what is the explanation in service uh, or what is the ex- sure the explanation in service of if it's in service of not really taking accountability for the thing that I did because I'm getting to like explain it and get, you know then you know that or is it in service of giving the person context mm-hmm. you know so that I can fl- so that I can own what I did what was mine and what was not totally mine but you know, mm-hmm. what is what is the explanation in service of? That's a, I guess, that's a great way to put is, it. Yeah. And it's, it's also you can look at it in terms of, right, if someone is using it as an excuse, you know, using something as an excuse, they say, oh, I can't help it because of this. And they they're not actively trying to change. But if someone's actively mm-hmm. trying to change, acknowledging something that might be working against them is a way for them to acknowledge like this is working against me so i have to try hard against that thing right exactly and that i mean and that's kind of exactly what we do in therapy it's like we go there wanting to grow or change in certain ways and part of what we do is like mine Mm -hmm. our past or Mm -hmm. mine our influences as part of that so it's just it's it's i mean it's just it, it can be if 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 you're really trying to take ownership or take responsibility it's really it's really helpful to see yourself clearly, to see what has happened clearly to your point so that you can kind of, you know, d- maneuver around the, th- you know, change the things you, you can control or maneuver around the things that you can't control in, 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 you know, in whatever way you can. Yeah, I like it because um, I, I think what we're what we have to do is we have to help people with their with their narratives that we have to reconstruct their narratives for them what i hear a lot from folks we engage with you i also listened to your episode on um the fundamentalist who who left fundamentalism and they had a wonderful term mm. um called an ideectomy i think was the way they put it <laughs> where like oh. where you have to you have to pull out this one kind of idea <laughs> yeah, right? right but if you if you huh. if you take out especially for some of these individuals who are like people of the one book which is the other quote from your skeptical thing right, <laughs> right. um like if you take that away from them but don't give them something else they they're they're stuck there's a huge void there and huh. they have yeah. to 
you know, and often that can be filled with another group that seeks to take advantage of people who don't have something there. Yeah, no, if you're going to ask someone to jump ship, you have to give them a better ship to jump to. Otherwise, what's the incentive? Yeah. Yeah. But I think there's value in replacing it with this idea about moral luck that allows them to say, you know, this was something that I experienced, but I am not that thing. That's a a common mindfulness refrain that we use. It's almost a meditative mantra. To sit, sort uh-huh. of sit there and meditate and say, oh, here's this experience of pain. I see it, but I am not that thing, right? You can, uh-huh. you can do the same thing with your history of being a bully or something and say, I experienced this. I went through it. I made mistakes that I have to correct, but I don't have to see myself as a bully forever now. Yeah. Yeah. And that and actually the... Um Frank and Jesse, the former, former, and I hate to refer to, the, to them as the former white supremacist and the former jihadi extremist because they are more than that and not just that, to your point. They both had really kind of refreshingly non kind of like ego ways of describing themselves. Like, I, I don't even, I, like I asked, I don't remember what I asked Frank something about who, who he, who, how he sees himself and his response was so, he said something like, you know, I don't, he was like, oh, I, I'm a hockey coach who cares about equality. He's like, I don't even know. I don't, I don't even know what to call. He was like, I, I, I have a propensity for, you know, d- alcoholism and drug addiction. I know that. But besides that, he was like not willing to even kind of like pin himself down mm-hmm. into anything in particular. <laughs> I think partly from, you know, from having had such a concrete, you know, identity that he has, he had sunk all of himself into mm-hmm. and just really wanting to liberate himself from that so that he could have room to become whoever he's becoming. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. It was refreshing to hear, you know, yeah. Cause we all, we, you know, kind of get attached to our labels of ourselves or our narratives about ourselves. And yeah. How, how do you, um, I'm just curious, how do you cope with, do you, do you experience any sort of empathy burnout when you're engaging in these projects? Um, the voidiness of it all no that's a not I haven't done um, I I have not had that experience Um, Mm -hmm. I I actually find that the more I spend time with someone's story the more I am invested in them and yeah so maybe maybe it kind of moves in the opposite direction, I guess. It's like, I might start out and it sounds like this, you know, um, I hate to say it like it's, you know, it's like, okay, now I'm doing the story about the person who changed their mind on guns, you know, and it's, it has kind of like a tokenistic mm-hmm. feeling or something in the beginning, because it was just, it started out as an idea of a thing that I was looking for. But as I, talk to them and hear them and spend more time with them. and then and then spend all of the time editing I, I i i actually just end up really i mean i feel like i kind of fall in love with all my guests just because i'm spending so much time with their voice and with their story so it kind of moves in the opposite direction like maybe at first it's like oh you know i guess this is the topic i mean not not that i feel that way i'm excited about the topic but no it i feel like i end up kind of getting more invested in the person do you ever get attacked for like people accusing you of normalizing these individuals or 
uh, shielding them or in some way, you know, letting them off the hook by being allowed to have these conversations? Yeah, at first I was more nervous about that um, because I didn't want to make it. I, I'm not I'm not um, I'm not letting anyone off any hook. You know, I'm just the, the only person who can let them off the I mean really it's it's really more themselves or their god or the whoever they affected like I I don't have the power to absolve anyone um I I I was more nervous about that in the beginning either either this is just either I'm not hearing from those people because they wouldn't want to listen to the show anyway or and or Mm -hmm. this is just really kind of striking a chord right now especially post-election because I think there is a growing appetite to understand, at least among some people, to, to understand where other people are coming from and how we ended up here and why this country is so divided. And and so I think there's just, it's less of a, of like a, why are you letting this person off the hook? And more of a, I really actually need to kind of understand why this person believed or believes what they believe. Have you watched... Um Sarah Silverman show, I Love You, America. I have a little bit, yeah. because yeah. she, she, she does a lot of this kind of thing as well. I think it's on her first episode where she goes and visits a family uh, in, like, the Deep South that voted for Trump uh, just to hear them and talk to them and listen. Yeah, I mean, this is this is kind of a, a something that feels really up right now, this bridging of divides or hearing hearing where the other is coming from and... Yeah, I have found so many different initiatives, you know, media, podcasts, events, things that are that are, I would say, like kind of loosely oriented around helping us take a walk in each other's shoes, Mm -hmm. which which, yeah, I I think is if done, if done right, can be really helpful. Yeah. Yeah. Do you have a regiment of uh, any sort of counterbalances that you recommend for individuals who are trying to take a walk in the shoes of people uh, who they vastly disagree with? Huh. I mean, the, Reckonings is my regiment. That's your regiment. Fair enough. <laughs> is there a certain type um, of sock? But, like, is it a wool sock that helps to be in those shoes? Or uh, do you go just barefoot? Wool socks will probably get kind of sweaty. So I would, I would recommend, I mean, depending on where you live, <laughs> but I would probably recommend something a little lighter. Um yeah, what I, I, I don't know. I think it's also. I think this is also tricky, which is why I said if done, if if done right, it can be really helpful because there can also be a way in which just tuning into quote unquote the other side can be really frustrating mm-hmm. and just make you even more angry and make you want to dig your heels in even more. And so that's not. It's not. I, I mean, it's not like that is like the right answer. I. I mean, it's. Um, uh, you know, especially because if I'm tuning into something like Infowars, I'm just going to get, I'm, I'm going to get, I'm just going to get really angry. I'm not, it's not going to help me understand where Alex Jones is coming from mm-hmm. at all. Mm-hmm. Or the people who uh, read, you know, read info and watch Infowars. Um, so yeah, maybe it just kind of goes back to the question of, you know, who is your other and, and mm-hmm. and then you know and then what what might actually be a way that you can understand where they are coming from and it might not be to read you know like the the uh, blog 
of the opposite end of the political spectrum. It might be, you know, volunteering somewhere or, do, you know, doing something completely different. So, um, c c yeah, because I guess I also see this kind of like knee jerk, a little, a tiny bit of this like knee jerk reaction of like, oh, well, then, you know, why don't we take an event that happened and re read both sides of it or something? But like, that's that's also not that's that's not mm -hmm. necessarily depending on your goal but I, I I don't think I, I would find that helpful I don't find that helpful in fact so yeah it's 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 it might be more of a personal like who who is my other who am I otherizing who do I really not understand where they are coming from and when I say I don't understand I don't mean I actually mean I, I, I don't understand and it, I, I need to understand I it would be helpful to understand. And then how how just how might I go about doing that? It's interesting uh, the Infowars point you make because I spent many years listening to Rush Limbaugh for the exact purpose of wanting to understand the type of people that listen to that. I was when I was an undergrad, um, my advisor, who is my mentor, who I learned so much from about how to create theater art. Um, one day we were going to a gig together, and so he drove me. And he was listening to Rush Limbaugh, and I never imagined he would be the kind of person that would. And like huh. it, it completely like I had this caricature idea of what a Rush Limbaugh listener was, and he fit right. none of that. And uh -huh. you know, he's a super empathetic person, and I was like, it's impossible for someone to listen to Rush Limbaugh to be empathetic. Uh, and so I spent years listening to Rush, you know, not agreeing with a word he said, but just trying to do that. I mean, and I'm not suggesting everyone should do that per se, but it helped me realize the thing I said earlier about, you know, no one thinks that they're a villain in their own story. Right. Yes. Did you ever talk to your teacher about that? Uh, not really, but uh, uh, someone else who is a really good colleague of his, um, him and I have engaged in some really great debates about things like gun control and that kind of a thing. And we're on the opposite, complete, he was also a Rush Limbaugh listener, complete opposite ends. But we both have this very respectful debate with each other. And like, there have been times where we were going back and forth in comments on Facebook and one of his friends chimes in and calls me names or something. And immediately he jumps in and goes, don't call him that. You know, we're having a respectful debate. If you don't want to engage in that, then you can stop talking right now. And so we completely disagree, but have this very respectful sort of dialogue with each other. Yeah. Yeah, that's amazing. I mean, and there are, you know, there's, and I can, um, there's something called living room conversations, which, are you familiar with living room conversations? No. It's a, it's a, it's, it's a, it's kind of a DIY, basically, like bridging conversation. It helps people kind of invite um yeah it, it gives you kind of a template or a framework for having a conversation between about something guns abortion whatever it is um between diverse points of mm -hmm. views and po points of view and so it, it i i can i can send you a few things if you want to kind of like post yeah. it with this episode or something because there are some really amazing increasingly more you know examples of of how to do this and ways to do this just because this just feels so up right now in our country. It's totally up my alley. Um, 
Yeah. Okay. Yeah. There's there's one called Make America Dinner again. <laughs> it's a it's a dinner that gets people with different points of view together. Yeah. There's so much experimentation I feel like going on in this space. And uh yeah, and I guess I don't have a kind of like well developed uh I don't know, uh, uh perspective on <laughs> which ones work well and why. But there's, but I do love seeing that there is. It just feels like there is so much experimentation around this yeah, right that's now. Great. I do think that is good. I I feel like you. It sounds like you have a somewhat optimistic. I feel like view of, you know, the healing of our epistemic and moral divides as a country. I'm a little bit more, on the pessimistic end at this point. I feel like there are some irreconcilable differences, both in terms of how we think the world exists or has existed in recent history and how it ought to exist that i'm concerned we may not bridge do you feel like there are situations where you just you can't get on the same page with these individuals oh certainly i mean there have been interviews i've done that i haven't aired and it wasn't because it wasn't or it wasn't perhaps only because um i just couldn't you know, I, I, I also have my point of view, you know, there is a limit to where I can go, mm-hmm. you know, um, it, but I, I would say it wasn't only because I, I couldn't, I just couldn't agree, let's say, with where they were coming from. It's also because I didn't feel like they were a compelling storyteller or I, you know, whatever, I didn't feel like it was like a, a reckoning the way that I understand what a reckoning <laughs> is. And so, but, but I, but, but I, yeah, I certainly have, um, you know, I, 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 but I, I, I am an optimistic person. I mean, but w- which is also a, a practice, you know, I, I consider it a practice, a discipline to both really hold the gravity of what is happening in the world right now to see it clearly for what it is. And to also maintain my sense of, you know, creativity and imagination and how we might move forward. So I, but yes, I do. I, and I, and the reason I feel optimistic though, is because I'm, I'm witnessing it, right. I, th- I'm looking for it. I mean, this is, this is what I'm doing with the show. I'm finding people who have managed to overcome all kinds of things, who've managed to change in all kinds of ways. So I, I, I see it and I see that it's, that it's imminently, it's not easy. Like for, for a lot of these people, it's a painful process, but it's imminently available to everybody. They're not doing something that was really expect, you know, there mm-hmm. it's, it's a lot of it is just, again, it's about seeing yourself clearly and, or seeing the other, whoever the other is clearly. And that is something that is imminently available to everyone. What, one thing just to sort of set the record straight, Aaron isn't really a pessimist or an optimist. He's a <laughs> flip flopper. Sometimes he's a pessimist, sometimes he's an optimist. Wow. But that's, wow, way to stab me in the back in front of our it's guests. Just Thank you. It's just a fact. I super appreciate that. I flip-flop too. I flip-flop too. I, By flip-flop, you know, what he means days. is there are, there are some days. There are complicated, there are a lot of ins, there are a lot of outs, uh-huh. a lot of what have yous. And this is a great example of one, right? Um, I'm, I'm reminded of Eckhart Tolle in Power of Now, where he talks about what some might consider a really silly example but i think it's a really wonderful description of what it's like to be mindful which is his description of dropping the towel and what he says mm-hmm. is um being unmindful is like holding onto a towel and asking how do i drop this towel like there's no way to describe to someone how you know like you can describe sort of the physical act of doing it but like they either just figure out how to do it or they don't do it and oftentimes with this these unmindful narratives um, it's impossible right up into the moment where it becomes incredibly easy 
You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Like mm-hmm. it's terrifying right up until it becomes the new normal and then it's fine. And that mm-hmm. like that kind of shift is is hard to precipitate. But I think your show really nails the the key ideas behind it. Things like uh, the shift towards humility, right? Humility with regard to your own perspective and your own narrative and humility with regard towards your judgments towards other people. Mm-hmm. And that, yeah, and and I would say I would even go. It's like it's 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 impossible until it becomes easy, and then at some point it actually becomes more fun mm-hmm. and more enjoyable. So that also gives me hope. Is that what you think you are, a hero? Saved the world, didn't I? Once. Talk to me after you've done it a couple more times. I think I'm just gonna go for uh, someone I talked to yesterday who I might end up interviewing who uh, he got sucked into kind of a technology vortex. He got really into video games and, you know, social media, all the social media and pornography, which was really tough for him because he's also a deeply spiritual person and that really bothered him. And, uh, I'm just gonna say, you know, he and he has been doing a lot of work and being, I think, really honest with himself and with his partner, especially about the pornography, which is really courageous because that's really risky. And someone could just walk out on you if they're not particularly happy about that, which I don't think she was. Um, so I'm just gonna I'm just gonna hand it over to to and I'm not gonna name this person in case I don't well, uh, um, yeah, I'm not gonna name this person, but uh, I, I, I hero for two reasons. One for obviously the big, you know, the, the big healing he's done with himself and his relationship with technology, which is something we can all learn from. And two, because it's, it's just amazing to me. It continues to amaze me that within, you know, cause this is an exploratory call that I'm having with this person. I don't know if I'm going to interview them and it's within 30 seconds of us getting on the phone. He doesn't know me that he just starts opening up and just telling me his story and telling me his, you know, his, about his suffering and, you know, and what what he was all wrapped up in things he's not proud of. And I just, yeah, I want to hand it over to him for having the courage to just talk to basically a stranger and completely open up and also, you know, do, do, do some healing that we can all learn from. Yeah. I think that's great. I think ultimately you're right that, The whole concept of the show is right that we have to, at some point, let go of the need to hold people accountable and accept that they can change and that they need to be forgiven if they're going to be fully reintegrated back into the moral community. Um, And I think that the humility that you talk about um, with people recognizing both how they are the result of a product of a variety of circumstances, but that they also have done things wrong that have hurt people. Uh, is really a great way to um, to bridge that gap. Thanks. <laughs> <laughs> I think it's it's also just so cool that it it you see so much overlap that like um, the reality of a lot of ethical situations is that they are very similar. That you see the similar kinds of avoidance, you see the similar kinds of need for um, feeling driving problematic behavior that becomes compulsive until eventually it becomes so harmful that it has to break and be resolved. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I often say, I mean, changing your mind is changing your life. 
Yeah. Yeah. It's changing who you are. Because it's all wrapped up in everything, you know, in your community and your, you know, what you read, what you watch, what you believe. It's all wrapped up. So, yeah. Yeah, I guess as much as the flip side of that, you know, you are not this experience or that thing or this thing. Meditation is admitting that concretely in the real world, you are in many ways the sum of those parts and that you have to uh, accept the parts that are problematic and try to change them and improve the ones that are uh, less problematic. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, thank you so much cool. for having uh, joining us and talking about this. This has been... Yeah, thank you for having me. Yeah, this is fun. Uh, do you want to tell people where they can find you just one more time? Sure, yeah. So that you, so wherever you get your podcasts, you can find Reckonings, iTunes, Stitcher, etc. You know, website, it's uh, www.reckonings.show. Facebook is facebook.com slash reckonings. Um, and, and or we, we, I'm on Twitter at uh, Steph Lepp. Great. And and what do you have upcoming? Anything else you want to tease besides the um, person with technology um, addictions? Yeah, let's see. Um, so what's coming is actually um, is uh, I. So I have a few other projects in the works. Uh, some video stuff and playing around with memes and visual memes. So what's really coming up is is actually just starting to work in themes. Mm-hmm. Uh, and taking on a theme like truth or technology or inequality and just producing a series of work around it, which will include a couple episodes and other things that if you follow along, you'll find out about. But so I think the next theme is going to be truth. And so that will involve a couple episodes, perhaps one or more journalists, one or more scientists. It's just going to be like a whole series of work that takes on our reckoning with truth in this post-truth moment. And then the next one will probably be technology, which is when you may hear my hero of this week. Oh, nice. I'm sorry to open up a can of worms, but I'm just curious. Would you ever consider doing people who had a reckoning that wasn't sort of because they did something wrong? Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. And I don't, I don't like how I see what, how I define a reckoning or it is not, doesn't mean that something was done wrong. It really is just, I would say, uh, an, an, an evolution of one's thinking and it's and it's not even actually necessarily of one's th- it's it's not you know from one position to the opposite position but but from let's say certainty to uncertainty mm-hmm. or from 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 being fearfully attached to my views you know to having the liberty to be critical of them and reflect on them and change them to adapt to the reality around me so it's not just a change in views, but a change in the way that we relate to our views. It's kind of like a meta change. So, mm-hmm. and that can happen whether what you were doing before anything, it's just, it's just, you're just changing the way that you relate to your views, yourself, who you are. And, and how, so that, so yeah, definitely that doesn't mean that it has to have been some bad thing that you regret. It could just be, yeah, an, a, a growth. It's interesting. Um, any kind of growth. It's interesting. Yeah. I, I've never used the word reckoning, but when I was in grad school, uh, there was a moment in one of my classes that changed me as an artist. And and it was just simply like this one question, which was, does it support the action of the play? And it like, even in that moment, and I still vividly remember, mm-hmm. and I tell people this all the time, like how that became the fundamental question of 
the art of storytelling, that everything, no matter what it is you do, revolves around that singular question. Does it support the action of yeah. the play? That's yep. the question. Mm-hmm. What does that mean? Uh, any choice that we make artistically can can be taken to that, right? It There's a pitfall that happens in, a lot in entertainment art where, oh, I want to do this because it would look cool or, oh, that's flashy and that's uh-huh. cool. But it has nothing to do with the story you're trying to tell. You're doing it because right. the thing itself right. is interesting in some way. And it... Yeah, no, there's there's a similar in storytelling. It's does it move the story yeah, forward? Exactly. Yeah, same idea, basically. Yeah. Yeah, you gotta kill your darlings as painful as mm-hmm. it is. Yes, exactly. To move the story forward. Yeah. It's a good nice dark ending here. Thank you. I appreciate <laughs> cap that off proper with void. I mean this is yeah. and by the way, I have I also have to thank you for the my new favorite word, which is voidiness. Oh, it's spreading, so, right? It's like truthiness. Thank you for that too. I'm so happy yeah. to see it spread. Yeah. Well, thank you so much, Stephanie. We really appreciate it. Yeah. And the great work. And um, we will send people along your way. So, All right. Thank, thank you. you. Yeah. Thanks, everybody, for listening. Okay. We'll catch you all Bye. next week. We would like to thank our top patrons, Mr. Rubinowitz and Brenda Goodman, Dave Maslick, Abe, Corey Johnson, host of the Brainstorm podcast on the Hardcore Skeptic, CampQuest is hiring. More info at campquest.org. Mr. Nobody, Chad Trait, and Scott John Harrison at Shaded Sprider. If you would like to become a patron, find us at patreon.com slash embrace the void. As always, remember, you are the void and the void is you. Mm-hmm.